And that, my friends, is how America was made great once again. Breaking at this hour, Jimmy Sangenberger is currently at the crossroads of politics and economics. Radio broadcaster master, now the celeb on the web. He's the smarty of the party. He's in cahoots with the grassroots. Jimmy at the Crossroads brings you thought-provoking commentary, hard-hitting interviews, original satire, and the best bumper music known to man. Jimmy at the Crossroads! Gonna talk money, gonna talk politics. We're for all generations. Oh, what a great mix, I said. Gonna talk money, gonna talk politics. Grateful all generations. Oh, what a great mix. I got Jimmy and the Crossroads making sense out of nonsense. People want answers. They want to understand They come to the crossroads And Jimmy gives them the plan I said, gonna talk money Gonna talk politics Pray for all generations Oh, what a great mix I got Jimmy at the crossroads Making sense out of nonsense Come on, Jimmy, what you got? Hello, my friends. Welcome to Free to Choose Friday here on Jimmy at the Crossroads. Probably the only political web show podcast that begins with the host himself playing a little harmonica in his very own theme song. The great Biff Gore, the ambassador of soul, singing with that incredible voice. He, in fact, competed on The Voice. In season six, he's also a pastor based out of Englewood, Colorado, and just a tremendous, tremendous man. Father of, I think, seven kids, Biff Gore, the man, the myth, the legend, great man, tremendous musician. So excited that we've got to partner with him on that original theme song for Jimmy at the Crossroads. Welcome to the program. I'm Jimmy Sangenberger coming to you in partnership with the Washington Examiner. Please be sure to subscribe to the YouTube channel if you have not done so already, youtube.com slash Jimmy at the Crossroads. Follow me on Twitter. You see it right there on the screen at Sang Center. That's saying with an E, not an A, Center on Twitter. Also on Facebook, facebook.com slash Jimmy Sangenberger Pro is the place to go in order to follow yours truly there and access the different content. We do stream live on Facebook Live. We post all sorts of content and videos on Facebook Live, on Facebook. So be sure to check out the Jimmy Sangenberger Media Personality page. And finally, follow our friends and partners at The Washington Examiner on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and, of course, at WashingtonExaminer.com. So great to be with you on another Free to Choose Friday. We're going to be focusing today on socialism, on halting socialism and why it is essential to do so with special guests Dinesh D'Souza, author of the brand-new book, 
the United States of Socialism. So excited to speak with the legendary Dinesh D'Souza. We will also be joined for a full segment together by Morgan Ziegers, who is the founder of Young Americans Against Socialism, and also by Christian Lasfal, who is a, an ambassador to the, for the Falkirk Center and is someone who's from a Cuban-American family that escaped the tyranny of Fidel Castro's Cuba. So excited about our guest lineup today here on Jimmy at the Crossroads and a free to choose Friday that of course is so named for a couple of reasons. One, as human beings, we are and of right ought to be free to think, free to act, and free to choose. Being free to choose is fundamental to a free society. But we also do so in part to honor the late great economist of the 20th century, Milton Friedman who of course had a book and also a series, a television show of the same name entitled Free to Choose. And as we always like to do on a Free to Choose Friday, let's cue his show intro. Gotta love it. That is so 1980. That's for gosh darn sure. Good to have you today here on Free to Choose Friday. And I want to begin our discussion of socialism as we often do, actually we always do, on a Free to Choose Friday by playing a little bit of the quintessential Milton Friedman. And I want to go to cut four here to start because Friedman was talking about something we're really going to focus on today a little bit which is the idea of messaging capitalism versus messaging socialism. This is from a 1975 appearance of Dr. Friedman on a program called The Open Mind. Another answer to your question as to why you seem to have the drift to collectivism is along these lines. The argument for collectivism, for government doing something, is, is simple. Anybody can understand it. If there's something wrong, pass along. If somebody is in trouble, get Mr. X to help him out. The argument for, a free, for voluntary cooperation for a free market is not nearly so simple. It says, you know, if you allow people to cooperate voluntarily and don't interfere with them, indirectly through the operation of the market, they will improve matters more than you can improve it directly by appointing somebody. That's a subtle argument, and it's hard for people to understand. And moreover, people think that when you argue that way, you're arguing for selfishness, for greed. That's utter nonsense. The people who are in positions of power in a political hierarchy are also selfish and greedy. Mankind is selfish and greedy. He's spot on there, particularly about the challenge of messaging capitalism, which does not rely upon a big, expansive government solution. In fact, it's quite the opposite of a big, expansive government solution. Now, Mark Cuban, I don't think he was arguing for socialism, per se, although some could say that when we're talking about the kind of jobs program he was advocating. But Mark Cuban, a few weeks ago, came on this show, and he said, 
I'm open to an alternative. I don't think there's an alternative that can quickly create millions of jobs that are needed in the American economy quickly enough. We need a massive, expansive government program. Well, what that implies is that government is the only way in which to promote prosperity, to reinvigorate the economy, to help people get back on their feet. That is the opposite of the argument, as I was putting forward with Mark Cuban on this program, for capitalism, for the free market, which is government needs to get more out of the way than getting in the way. Government needs to be less heavily involved than more heavily involved. And it is a challenging argument at times to make. The left likes to really look to Franklin Delano Roosevelt as a significant thinker. And I just thought of this. So I want to share a quote. As FDR looked back on his so-called program of progress, of course, he was the president of the United States, who presided over the Great Depression for the most of, most of its time, and I argue, who through his New Deal programs made things even worse. He said this, as new conditions and problems arise beyond the power of men and women to meet as individuals, it becomes the duty of the government itself to find new remedies with which to meet them. Government has the definite duty to use all its power and resources to meet new social problems with new social controls. In other words, government's got the means. There are problems. Have government address those problems with the means that it's got, the resources it's got, that it can mobilize from taxpayers or from the rich. That's the fundamental philosophy of socialism, is it not? Government's role is not to be small and minimal and to be narrowly tailored toward protecting the rights of the individual, but it is to provide cradle-to-grave services and in the truest form of socialism, to control the means of production. The Milton Friedman briefly touched there on the question of greed as well, and I want to play cut two. He was on with Phil Donahue, 1979, on his show. And, I mean, this is one of the most famous Friedman clips, I think, because he talks about the question of what is greed. Take a listen. Well, first of all, tell me, is there some society you know that doesn't run on greed? You think Russia doesn't run on greed? You think China doesn't run on greed? What is greed? Of course, none of us are greedy. It's only the other fellow who's greedy. <laughs> this, the world runs on individuals pursuing their separate interests. The great achievements of civilization have not come from government bureaus. Einstein didn't construct his theory under order from a, from a, a bureaucrat. Henry Ford didn't revolutionize the automobile industry that way. In the only cases in which the masses have escaped from the kind of grinding poverty you're talking about, the only cases in recorded history are where they, where they have had capitalism and largely free trade. If you want to know where the masses are worth, worse off, worst off, it's exactly in the kinds of societies that depart from that. So that the record of history is absolutely crystal clear that there is no alternative way so far discovered of improving the lot of the ordinary people that can hold a candle to the productive activities that are unleashed 
by a free enterprise system? But it seems to reward not virtue as much as ability to manipulate the system. Uh, and what does reward virtue? You think the uh, communist commissar rewards virtue? You think a Hitler rewards virtue? You think, excuse me, if you'll pardon me, do you think American presidents reward virtue? You know, I think you're taking a lot of things for granted. And just tell me where in the world you find these angels who are going to organize society for us. Well, I don't even trust you to do that. Again, so true. Human beings are not greedy or self-interested. And there is a difference, I think. I think greed is cutthroat. It is much more, I'm going to achieve my objectives, to build up my wealth, my money, whatever, by any means necessary. By any means necessary, I will achieve. That's sort of cutthroat. That's more my vision of greed. Whereas self-interest is, I am going to operate in my own best interest. Now, well, before I get ahead of myself here, Friedman is so right about that, especially because He's not talking about just this idea of capitalistic greed in a private market context. Politicians are notoriously greedy no matter what kind of socioeconomic or political system you have. Politicians are always going to do whatever they can to advance their power interests. They are not guided by virtue. They might go into politics for some virtuous cause. But rarely ever do politicians maintain that virtuous attitude. That's just reality. So Friedman is right to say, look, you can't just knock the idea of individual self-interest or greed in the context of a private sector economy. You need to also look at the fact that it is intrinsic to human beings. Now, what I was going to say a moment ago is that self-interest, you don't always know what is in your best interest, for sure. Nobody's ever going to know that. Certainly, government bureaucrats and politicians are not going to be able to decipher what is in your best interest. I trust you to figure that out more than government ought to be trusted to figure that out. At the same time, that doesn't mean that you're going to be perfect as a person in terms of your self-interest. We are walking, talking contradictions. We can make a decision and then regret it later. But at least you can then write the course. If your ship of your, the ship of your life goes off course, you can fix it a lot more easily than government bureaucrats or politicians in Congress in Washington, D.C. will be able to write the course to put the ship back on the trajectory that it needs to be. Self-interest, we must recognize this. I mean, what is it Adam Smith said about it not being the benevolence of the butcher that brings us our meat, but he's guided by his own self-interest? Now, there are a lot of factors that can go into motivations of human beings, but it's important to keep that in mind. Self-interest is fundamental to human nature, and one of the beautiful virtues of free market capitalism versus top-down government-controlled socialism is that it tries to maximize the benefits 
of self-interest. In just a few moments, we will be joined by Morgan Ziegers of Young Americans Against Socialism in the Falkirk Center, Center's Christian Lasfall. And they will join us to talk about socialism, the need to prevent against it, and what's going on with younger generations today vis-a-vis -vis socialism. You do not want to miss this. You are watching Jimmy at the Crossroads. I'm Jimmy Sangenberger coming to you in partnership with The Washington Examiner. To play, do you yell out spark? Do you put in pauses when you talk? Do you start real soft and then go real loud? Have you won two Emmys? Do you love a crowd? Whatever makes you feel like a shatter. Yeah, you got lots of macho and swagger. You had alien affairs. You sing bad, but no one cares. You find Me, phases on stunning. Sometimes, folks, on a Friday when you're feeling good, you just got to have a little bit of fun. Who else is going to do something like that? Coming back here on Jimmy at the Crossroads in partnership with the Washington Examiner, I am Jimmy Sangenberger. It's such a pleasure and a privilege to be with you as always here on the program, especially on a free-to-choose Friday. That's all about freedom. Coming up after the top of the hour, we will be joined by Dinesh D'Souza, author of the new book, The United States of Socialism. He's got some interesting takes on what we're seeing right now as far as the mentality of socialists today, 21st century socialism, and how it's changed a little bit from the past, although some of the fundamental things remain, of course, which is the idea of government control and the need to provide, in the minds of socialists, all sorts of services for the people. It's benevolent, isn't it? Also, be sure, by the way, to subscribe to the YouTube channel if you have not done so already, youtube.com slash Jimmy at the Crossroads. Be sure to follow our friends at the Washington Examiner as well, WashingtonExaminer.com. So let's get the ball rolling today with a great discussion on socialism, the travesties that we've seen of socialized systems historically, and why it is essential that the United States not go down this road to serfdom, this road to socialism, especially for the up-and-coming generations, millennials and Generation Z. Let's talk with two fellow members of these generations. Here on Jimmy at the Crossroads, pleased to be joined by the founder of Young Americans Against Socialism, Morgan Ziegers, as well as Christian Lasfall, who is an ambassador at the Falkirk Center. Welcome to you both to the show. Good to have you. Thank Good you. To be. 
Thanks for coming on. So I, I'm so excited to have you both here because we're really going to get into a couple of different angles on this. One is why socialism is so bad, and you both have excellent perspectives on that from your organizations and your own personal backgrounds. But also to really talk a little bit about what we're thinking is going on in terms of the millennial generation and Generation Z on these issues. Um, and, and I want to start with Christian specifically because you have your own personal family story of your family having come here to the United States, fleeing the tyranny of Fidel Castro's socialist regime in Cuba in 1980. Tell us your personal story. Yeah, so my family actually came as Cuban refugees on the Mariel boat lift in 1980. They were one of the uh, fortunate uh, Cubans who were able to come over to the United States. But the entire reason why they sought that freedom, despite the fact that they understood that the family whom they left behind may very well face punishment for them deciding to leave the country, uh, they did so because they knew there was an opportunity in the United States that did not exist in Cuba, that there were opportunities for them to succeed here and provide for their family here and live a life of freedom here that was not possible in any stretch of the imagination in Cuba and not better available anywhere else in the world than in the United States of America. And so they packed their one suitcase for eight people, which was enough to carry essentially all of their belongings and make the two-week trek as they were taken from point to point, uh, unsure if they had just embarked on a lie that they, the government told them they could leave, but they might be killed on their way to finally their destination point where they were able to board a boat um, from benevolent Americans who sent their boats over to Cuba to pick them up and bring them over to the land uh, of opportunity. But they, they came here specifically because they needed to escape the tyranny, the stronghold, and the inhibition of any kind of individual freedom that exists in, in Cuba. And Christian, when it comes to the legacy of Fidel Castro's regime and what you have learned from your family, what is the most startling thing, if you could, if you could pick one or maybe two, uh, startling lessons learned from the tyranny of that kind of regime, what would it be? I think one of the most startling things is how intense the censorship is. I think one of the best combatants to socialism is the ability to freely discuss the evils that are experienced in those systems. And we see that the first, one of the first things that socialist and, and eventually communist governments have to do is they have to silence dissent. They have to stop people from expressing a, a point of view that might be contrary to the idea that they're trying to sell. Because if you explain to people the benefits of freedom and they believe them because they are better, uh, you might cause that communist or socialist government to lose their power. So that's one of the most starting, starting, startling excuse me, lessons that I see and one of the biggest threats that I see uh, seeping into the United States with cancel culture like we have right now or with speech codes that certain uh, elected officials of ours would like to see imposed here in the United States. And that is all a great first step in silencing dissent so they can continue to advance their socialistic lies. If you can con convince a population and hide dissenting points of view, then it's a lot easier to inflict these positions on them because they don't know any better and they don't know any alternative. Yeah, they don't have not only the freedom to choose their words, but the freedom to choose who they want to listen to and to hear different ideas exactly. expressed. A couple weeks mm -hmm. ago, our Free to Choose Friday was focused on the issue of free speech, and it's so fundamental to a free society, to be sure. Morgan Zeger is with Young Americans Against Socialism. You founded the organization. One of the great things that I think uh, YAS has done has been an effort to really highlight stories of different people who have survived these kinds of oppressive, totalitarian, socialist regimes. What have you learned from all that kind of work and, and partnering up and hearing these stories? 
Of course, and thank you again for having me on. I will say my family hasn't come from a socialist or communist country like Christians, but they came uh, from Italy through Ellis Island and started a bakery in New York State. And I will say I do love this country and I'll do anything to protect it. I see the biggest threat to America as the rise of socialism amongst millennials and Gen Z. What I say, though, there is a study that says 70% uh, of young Americans currently would vote for a socialist. It's from the Victims of Communism Partnership poll with YouGov. And my counter to that is 70% of young Americans do not want to seize the means of production. They're being lied to about what socialism is. In order to push the socialist narrative, the socialist left has to distort basic fact, deny basic economics, and basic history. And I say, including Christian story and the other powerful testimonies, the only way to provide undeniable truth and undeniable fact is through the truth provided in first-hand testimonies like Christians. And so that's why we make these educational social media videos that tell the testimony of first-hand experiences. Yeah, it is so fundamental to understand, in order to understand the trials and tribulations of those who've lived under socialist utopias, what, in order to understand, you have to hear those stories because there is a lot of misinformation. And to your point, Morgan, uh, in terms of, freedom and free markets and also free speech I mean fundamental to that too is the ability to create your own business and that's not something that you have in these socialist societies in terms of being able to own private property and also set up your own establishment you you've created your own small business in addition to young Americans against socialism as your organization tell us about your experience there and how that really underscores the virtues of the free market versus socialism Thank you for bringing that up. I do have a small woodworking business. I make wooden American flags, and I like to tell people in my generation about that because I used that business to pay off my student loans. I taught myself to make those flags using YouTube tutorials, but I will bring it to a larger issue here, and that's a big misunderstanding about what, what socialism is. What it is is the, the seizing of the means of production, the nationalization of industries, the ending of private business. You have groups like Justice Democrats, the Democrats of America specifically. If you go on their website, it talks about how they plan to get rid of private business in exchange for community-owned businesses. That's an interesting term. And what they talk about is how they don't actually have a long-term plan to achieve getting rid of private business in America. And so for the short term, they'll work to gain control of private business through high taxes and greater regulation. The distinction that needs to be made in the minds of young Americans, though, is the difference between Nordic Europe, which Bernie Sanders and AOC and the rest of the squad say their policies will make us like. Unfortunately, in reality, Nordic Europe relies on capitalism. They love private business. Yes, they have high taxes and a lot of regulations, but at the end of the day, they have big programs that are funded by the wealth created from capitalism. If the Democratic Socialists of America, like AOC, got their way, they would work to get rid of private business, and that's a major distinction. It's not the same as Nordic Europe. It would make us like Cuba. It would make us like Venezuela. And so I think if we understood, our generation understood that one big lie, that big fact, this would really be a game changer in the fight 
fight against socialism. It's such an important point. By the way, Morgan, you were cutting in and out some somewhat there. So I'm going to have uh, Nathan Matus, producer extraordinaire, go ahead and get you back after he gets me and Christian on a on a two on a two screen. But your point is so well taken. I mean, in terms of the Nordic countries, we so often Bernie Sanders, Christian, makes that exact observation too. That hey, you look at these Nordic or Scandinavian countries, and they are all socialist societies. He points out, but to Morgan Zeger's point. That is not the case. If you look at the actual socialist societies, we're looking at a country like Cuba, for example, like the Soviet Union, like North Korea. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that I think is a huge disconnect with our with our uh, culture and our society today, particularly young people, is that they're growing up in a generation that's reaping the benefits of all of the work that previous generations have done to fight communists and fight socialist regimes. And they're benefiting from the fruits of their parents' labors, which came about as a result of the free market uh, economy and capitalistic principles that we have here in the United States. And so they see all of this wealth and abundance and think that it was either illegitimately attacked or they say, well, this this is possible. We want this for everybody else. But then they are sold this idea that the only way to do that is to force a redistribution to other people when in reality, it's the ability to have private industry and the ability for the individual to achieve their own success by providing a product that somebody else wants to purchase and that free market exchange that allows for this prosperity. When you force this redistribution and you limit people to how much they can or can't achieve, uh, what you create is equality for sure, but you create an equal poverty where there isn't the ability for those uh, for Americans to succeed in abundance so that in turn they can be extremely generous with what they have I think we see uh, people will often say that oh uh, capitalists are all greedy and it just leaves poor people impoverished and unable to get out of their out of their state and I always tell them I say there's nothing more sympathetic than allowing every American to achieve what they can to the best of their abilities thing that is uh, celebrated and valued and so that they can take the abundance of their wealth and go and help uh, those who are less fortunate. I think we see an example of that in fruition right now with the, the family uh, of George Floyd. We see that Americans, despite coming out of this socialistic lockdown from coronavirus, are still putting up money to help these families in need and would be willing to do so for countless others uh, who have who are in need and who are impoverished. The homeless man uh, who had his things burned in these riots. Uh, Americans rallied around him, got him a, a new tent and mattresses and food, and we can do that, uh, but only because because we have of ourselves to give in the first place. If you force yeah. down this socialistic, uh, uh, these socialistic policies and communist-like uh, policies for a government, what you end up doing is you disincentivize anybody from wanting to work and attaining a uh, profit level, and you make it impossible for there to be any wealth that we can help those who are less fortunate with. Our system of free market capitalism allows anybody who wants to the opportunity to succeed. The socialistic and communist model prevents them from doing so. And like I said, results in equality, un undoubtedly, but equal misery and equal poverty, which is why everybody who comes from one of these socialist countries like Venezuela or Cuba is dying to get out because they cannot succeed and they cannot move up from their state in life no matter how hard they try. Very well put. Uh, Morgan Zegers, let me ask you uh, from, of course, Young Americans Against Socialism. When we look at this argument about economic inequality, which is one of the justifications that American socialists like to put forward, especially to young people, to say, hey, we've got this economic inequality. We need government to step in and help people. What is your counter argument to that? 
Yes, and I think Christian touched on a good point where uh, pretty much the left has to monopolize the morality spectrum. And so they really do act like they are the moral side. And you mentioned earlier, Jimmy, uh, the road to serfdom. In the road to serfdom, Hyatt talks about how the left will distort basic language in order to uh, distort the narrative in general in their favor. And so that's why they use words like justice, freedom, morality, equality, fairness. What is fair? in the term of the left. I, I don't know. And so what I would suggest for conservatives and for people who love freedom and, and or even just are on the base of classical liberalism and are hoping to come together as Republicans and Democrats, I say we start focusing on results-oriented messaging that is similar to the left. And so the left says Medicare for all. I say conservatives talk about how they want to increase access to affordable health care for all Americans. All Americans deserve access to affordable health care. How do we achieve that? It's a little different than the left. We have different ideas. We believe in competition and, and uh, transparency and pricing. We have solutions for these problems, but unfortunately, again, the left is monopolizing morality, and we need to take it back. I think it will come with messaging and with focusing on the issues that young Americans care about most, like I said, health care, but also climate change, environmental issues, and the student loan crisis. These are three ways we can really win back young Americans. Uh, Morgan Ziegers, I think you hit on a few very important points, including one I was wanting to get to. So first of all, what is fair? I don't know what it is, you said. That's because nobody knows what it is. It's entirely a subjective term, what is fair. Also, to your point about providing alternatives, I'm all about proposition, not just opposition. We need to boldly say no to socialism, no to big government, no to government-orchestrated solutions, as they like to call them and yes to alternative ideas. But then also to your point about results, I have a clip of our patron economist, Milton Friedman, from, I don't know if this is the 1970s or the 1980s, but in Cut 6, he talks exactly about the importance of addressing results. Let's take a listen to this. The crucial thing is to look beneath the surface. Don't look at what the proponents of one system or another say are their intentions, but look at what the actual results are. Socialism, which means government ownership and operation of means of production, has appealed to high-minded, fine people, to people of idealistic views, because of the supposed objectives of socialism, especially because of the supposed objectives of equality and social justice. Now, those are fine objectives, and it's a tribute to the people of good will that those objectives should appeal to them. But you have to ask the question, does the system, no matter what its proponents say, produce those results? And once you look at the results, it's crystal clear that they do not. Where are social injustices greatest? Social injustices are clearly greatest where you have central control. The degree of social injustice and torture in a place like in, in incarceration, in a place like Russia, is of a different order of magnitude than it is in those Western countries where most of us have grown up and in which we have been accustomed to regarding freedom as our natural heritage. Judge results, not intentions. Indeed, they say the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Morgan Ziegers, watching that clip from before any of the three of us was born, is pretty striking. I think he put it into perspective pretty well what you were getting at in terms of results. 
Absolutely. I actually have not seen that clip before, so that makes me feel pretty excited because I had just come up with the idea of focusing on results-oriented messaging while I was in my car, uh, while I was in my shower, just concepting and coming you. up with ideas where we could try and win over young Americans. So, so I feel pretty good about that. But I think an important point to talk about with COVID-19, with uh, what happened with George Floyd, with what's happening with uh, communist China, there's a lot of instances right now where we're seeing the overbearing power of government and the impact that a big government can have on your life. And so a lot of people say young Americans support socialism so much because we've never had to live through those times. We weren't around when Milton Friedman was, Friedman was around. Uh, we weren't around during the USSR. We didn't personally experience Fidel Castro's tyrannical rule. And so we don't understand the terrors of it. But now we are seeing the implications of a communist China and the fact that they hid and censored information about COVID-19 existing and then spreading from person to person. It caused a lot of damage. On top of that, we're seeing what happens when, when you want justice for something like what happened with George Floyd. Do you want to be able to seek justice or do you want an overbearing government that will prevent you from seeking that justice? That lack of justice, that injustice comes from socialist and communist governments where the people have no power to fight back and seek uh, justice and reprimanding under the law. Christian Lasfell, your thoughts on this results question and some of what Morgan said. No, absolutely. I agree with everything that she said. I think a lot of times the socialist idea is sold as though if you, if we in, uh, enact socialism, it will be a utopia. Everybody will, will be well taken care of. Everybody will have good health care, good education. But when you look at countries who have tried to implement these very things across all of world history, we can rewind through all of civilization. Any time that there had been a, a socialist type government implemented, we saw that it, it resulted in negative results, that it resulted in greater poverty, that it resulted in greater sickness, ailment, um, people being tortured for disagreeing with their government. So a lot of times it's sold as though if we enact these policies that it will suddenly be a utopia. And what we have to recognize and what young people have to recognize is that in this fallen world, there is no such thing as a utopia. There will always be sin and people will always make mistakes. People will always do bad things. Not everybody will always attain the same levels of success that somebody else will, we have to recognize that we will never be in a perfect world where everybody has everything to the best of their abilities until God returns and we're all living in Christ's second coming. That's not going to happen. Um, and so what we have to do is then talk about what is the system that provides the most opportunity and freedom for people to succeed. Uh, that's the question that we have to that we have to be asking ourselves and judge that based on the results. What results do we see coming from socialist communist countries? Nothing good. We don't see anything worth replicating in America, which is why our founders crafted our nation the way they did, with each individual having the opportunity to do what they can with the talents that they were born with and the abilities that they were given by God, their creator, to create product and exchange it in a free market system where if you, if you want what I have, we'll exchange, we'll trade, and through that free exchange, develop wealth and continue advancing in our society. Understanding that there will never be a perfect situation where everybody has everything in perfect condition, but creating the system that allows the best opportunity for the most people to live as best as they can. And then, like I said, as a cultural issue, emphasizing the importance of if you have been blessed with abundance of wealth and resources, to be generous with that, to help others to rise in their stature, not because the government forces you to, but because you willingly want to out of what you've been given. That is a good thing. But when the government forces it, when the government mandates it, like uh, that clip showed, the results are never, ever, ever what the socialist uh, yeah. utopians try and sell you. And how is government 
even able to make those determinations about what's going to be best. I mean, James Madison talked about how men are not angels, and that's why we have separation of powers. That's why we have a limitation on the size and scope of government in the United States Constitution is a recognition that you don't have philosopher kings that can govern over society and just make life better. And I want to put up some footage here we have of Venezuela, the most recent case of failure of uh, communism and socialism on the world stage because, look, the, the economic devastation has just been, been terrible across that country of Venezuela because of this idea of nationalization. I mean, they're even right now, Venezuela, of all places, is having to get oil from Iran. That is, that is unheard of and stunning, and we need to keep in mind that that is a primary example today of real socialism. Now, I want to spend our remaining moments here with the two of you talking about what we need to do in order to express the vice that is socialism better to young people. What is the message that we need to get across and how do we do it? And I'll start with you, Morgan Seekers of Young Americans Against Socialism. Thank you. And, and I wish I could give you a simple answer. I'll try and keep it short, but there are, there's just so many factors that are playing into the issue here. Take there's a time, lack of please. values. There's a lack of education. Thank you. There's a lack of values. There's a lack of education. And on top of that, there's a major misunderstanding on uh, basic definitions. And so when it comes to education, I think in the classroom, what's being left out right now is uh, the initial promises of socialist leaders. So we learn a lot about the impact and the results of uh, people like Stalin, Lenin, Castro, and a lot of the other terrible dictators throughout history, Pol Pot. What you don't hear is that they came to power as a very positive uh, messaging leader and how they promised to change. They they promised to champion the working people. They promised to provide a lot of really great free things, a utopian society. And uh, the only thing we learn about is the impact. We, so when what happens now is you hear those same promises being made by the American left, and young Americans don't have the intellectual ammunition to say, oh, red flag should go off in my head. I've heard of these promises before, and they have never come to fruition. When it comes to lack of values, I can't tell you how many times I get off stage and these older Americans come up to me and they say, please talk to my child. I sent them to college for a semester, and now they are coming to me for Thanksgiving saying that they're socialists, that they're voting for Bernie, and they want to see AOC become president. What do I do? And I see that as the more we bolster really great values in the minds of our children and the more we work on our families at the dinner table and the more we pass down the greatness of America, and the opportunity that comes in the American economy, the better off we're going to be when we do send our children into the education system, the more bolstered they will be in their own values. We can't rely on the government to pass down values rooted in uh, common sense economics and, and uh, just being a good person. And you mentioned earlier, James Madison said, we're not perfect human beings. We absolutely aren't. And I will bring attention to the fact that the left is using pop culture. They're using uh, Teen Vogue. Teen Vogue sponsored a table and a panel at the Socialist Party of America's convention in 2019. At this panel, guess what they talked about? They talked about deconstructing the American family in order to promote socialism. What happens, and I've talked about this actually with the Falkirk Center, what happens is when you don't have those other sources of happiness in your life, you are more likely to focus on the financial situation you are in and be jealous and be unhappy with the situation that you are in economically. So I think that the more we can provide alternative sources to happiness, like religion, like family, like relationships, like love, and like children, uh, we're going to be able to focus more on uh, moving us forward as a community instead of focusing on central planning to fix people's problems in their lives. So uh, I'll leave it to that, and Christian, you can probably fill up for me. Please, Christian, go Absolutely. ahead. Absolutely. 
Yeah, I think one of the most important things to try and, and, and change the minds of our young people away from this idea that socialism is, a, is of any benefit to a culture and a society, it starts in the home. It starts in the home with families. It starts in churches. Those are the two first forms of government, the family and the church, before we get to elected officials in local, state, and federal governments. Politics is down, uh, downstream from our culture. So I think it starts there. And one of the biggest inhibitors to this happening right now is, and you can see it from the left in their staunch opposition to school choice. Why? Because that would afford people the opportunity to talk about different ideas that are uh, different than what today's socialist left is trying to sell us. And if we are able to tell people about those ideas, they're going to be more inclined to disagree with the socialist mantra and go toward a more free market capitalistic society. That's why they're so opposed to it. So I think that uh, our churches and our families, uh, things work like what the Falkirk Center is doing, where we're not a political organization, we're, we're engaging our culture and trying to reach young people with these ideas um, to te teach families and teach pastors. We're building a pastors network to talk with them about how they can talk about these issues with their congregations and with their kids. That's where it starts. That's why you see the left trying to get kids in public school from as close to birth as they possibly can because they can start indoctrinating them with a system of ideas and then prohibiting them from doing any kind of private schools or charter schools that might differ from what the leftist government approved narrative is that they want you to get. And I think something else to keep in mind is, is a quote, we said it last week, it just came to mind, so I'm going to read it from Nikita Khrushchev, who was from the 50s and 60s, he was in uh, the Soviet Union, he was their general secretary. We can't expect the American people to jump from capitalism to communism, but we can assist their elected leaders in giving them small doses of socialism until they awaken one day to find that they have communism. We do not have to invade the United States. We will destroy you from within. Morgan Ziegers, I think those are some words we need to be thinking about as we move forward with combating this socialist idea spreading across America. Absolutely. And I'll tell you what, I wake up every morning and I think of people like that who have said those things and it makes me even more inspired to keep fighting for this country. I do want to uh, mention though, in The Fountainhead by Ayn Rand, it talks about uh, techniques that you can use to internally corrupt someone and to really break them down in order to control them. And one of the really great points was that a happy man, a satisfied man is a free man. You can't, if somebody's busy going to their job and feeling satisfied in the work they do and they go get to take care of their family and they're building their home and they're building up their own lifestyle, they are not interested in the BS that you are peddling. And so that's why I think uh, Christian hit the nail on the head with that. If we provide people resources, if we provide people information and bolster them in the values that keep them happy and satisfied and appreciative of what we do have in America, we'll be less likely to be ungrateful for what we have in this country. No system is perfect. Capitalism isn't perfect, but it does provide us the opportunity to build a really wonderful lives for, so life for ourselves. And the better we improve as individuals, the better our communities are going to be, and it's going to grow up into our federal government. So I'm very excited for the future. I don't think 70% of young Americans want to seize the means of production, even though they may say they would vote for a socialist. Instead, I think they're very capitalist. They are, they are very entrepreneurial, innovative, creative, and they have the values of the American spirit deep down. We just have to stop the left from distorting uh, what capitalism and Americanism really are. And I think, Christian, real quickly, um, one of the things that I look at in terms of millennials and Generation Z and winning them over is this misunderstanding about capitalism and a belief that capitalism is responsible 
for the economic malaises we have seen over the past decade or so from the 2009 recession that resulted from the 0708 financial crisis on to today with what we're seeing with the coronavirus pandemic and what have you. And that's part of it. They're looking for an alternative to capitalism and they see, oh, it must be socialism. That must be the alternative. It's the other idea, the other possibility for us that will help people and address inequality. And I think it then comes down to first principles and making sure that young people can understand those. Well, and I would also say that the, the economic harm that we faced because of the coronavirus lockdowns was precisely because we stopped capitalism. We didn't allow the market to yeah. carry on. We didn't allow uh, Americans to, to adapt to the circumstances around them and modify their business structure so that they could continue providing their product and keep the market operating with increased safety standards. That's not an unreasonable uh, thing for the government to allow us to do. We see them doing it now, allowing people to go protest in masses, yelling, singing, all the things they told churches and private businesses, you can't do that, you have to stay shut down. All of a sudden when they found something that uh, presents better political capital for them, they're totally okay with it now. But they couldn't trust the American citizen to use their individual liberty and accommodate their businesses to continue to operate with heightened safety standards. Um, and so when, when people say, well, look, capitalism failed during coronavirus, no, 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 no. You stopped capitalism and started a more socialist type system and that's why it failed. It's precisely because you didn't allow capitalism to keep operating that we faced the economic hardship that we did. And so that's why a lot of conservatives have rightly commented that the coronavirus lockdowns were merely a trial run of socialism and a good demonstration. Thank God we still have the capitalist system that we can revert back to. We just saw the jobs report come out today that had a bunch, I think it was 2.5 million jobs added way above the projected uh, measures that the capitalist economy can begin to recover. But we did see a mini trial run of what socialism would look like uh, where you were short on things like toilet paper. If people don't think that's a reality, even for uh, Americans who go visit Cuba, they ration your toilet paper at restaurants, two squares to the bathroom for each time that you go. So these are realities that exist in these socialist uh, countries and we didn't experience them in America because capitalism failed. We experienced them in America because we stopped capitalism and decided to trial run socialism for the well, time being. Let me say this. I think that you two, like so many others, Morgan Ziegers and Christian Lasfall, really helped to give hope for those who are looking for hope in America today as we continue in this trajectory towards bigger and bigger government and perhaps on the road to socialism. Thank you both for joining us today. Really appreciate the conversation. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Once again, Morgan Ziegers, founder of Young Americans Against Socialism, and Christian Lasfall, who's an ambassador at the Falkirk Center at Liberty University, both joining us here on Jimmy at the Crossroads. And really, truly, there is cause for hope. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. There is cause for hope. And it is individuals like Morgan and Christian, I hope myself as well, Nathan Matouche, working the Matouche Magic as producer extraordinaire, and many others who provide that hope that we can and will move past this misunderstanding, this false belief of socialism. I'm Jimmy Sangenberger. Such a pleasure and a privilege to be with you today, as it is always on Jimmy at the Crossroads in partnership with the Washington Examiner. We will be joined shortly here by Dinesh D'Souza, who's author of a new book, The United States of Socialism, to get a better understanding of where socialists are at today, because some of their ideological perspective has changed over the course of the last number of years, 
as they realize they need to adapt sort of the times and maybe some other factors are in play changing up how they approach things. We'll be back here on Jimmy at the Crossroads. Stay tuned. And now, ladies and gentlemen, let's get you back to your host of the Crossroads. He bleeds red, white, and blue. He's a patriot, and he's for the free market. Jimmy Sagerberger, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back, Jimmy at the Crossroads. I'm Jimmy Sangenberger, Nathan Matouche, producer extraordinaire, working the Matouche magic once again here on the show in partnership with the Washington Examiner. So great to be with you today. By the way, there was a mention by Christian in the last segment about two and a half million jobs created in the month of May as the economy started reopening. It's interesting because a few weeks ago I had Mark Cuban on the program. I referenced that interview earlier. And he said, we need a government program in order to create three to four million new jobs because the private sector wouldn't be able to do it quickly enough. And yet here we have the private sector restoring two and a half million jobs. We've got a ways to go. But hey. Things are starting to look a little bit better just because we've started opening up. Once again, you're watching Jimmy at the Crossroads. I'm Jimmy Sangenberger, coming to you in partnership with the Washington Examiner. Subscribe to the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Jimmy at the Crossroads. We are focusing on this free-to-choose Friday edition of the program on socialism. And there's a brand-new book that actually expired, inspired me to choose this particular Friday as our free-to-choose Friday focused on socialism, entitled The United States of Socialism. It is by none other than author and documentarian Dinesh D'Souza, who I am so pleased to welcome here on Jimmy at the Crossroads today as we really focus in on socialism and what it could mean for America. Pleased to welcome Dinesh D'Souza, sir. Good to have you here. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you very much, and it's good to be on the program. Happy Free to Choose Friday. We just talked with a couple millennials about socialism and the pitfalls of this idea that seems to be in many ways sweeping across different segments of America. I'm more optimistic about millennials and Generation Z than a lot of people are when it comes to refuting socialism among them and rebirthing free market capitalism. But just I want to get a sense first for your feelings on the younger generation of Americans when it comes to socialism today. I think for young people today, um, socialism seems attractive because they think that they can unhook it from the authoritarian socialism of the past. Mm. Uh, they think that you don't have to do it the way Lenin did it or Mao or Castro, that you can create a kind of benign democratic socialism modeled, they say, on Scandinavia, not Venezuela or Cuba, and uh, one that takes into account not only class differences, but also racial grievances and gender grievances. So the term I use is identity socialism, a kind of marriage between socialism and identity politics. And because we're talking about this new hybrid, uh, I don't think it's sufficient to refute it by simply saying it didn't work before, uh, so it can't work now. Because as I say, the left says, yes, it can. Who says it doesn't work? It works in Sweden. It works in Norway. So my book is an attempt to come to grips 
with this new socialism uh, to articulate it, to criticize it, uh, to show who's behind it, and finally to show why it's bad and how it can be stopped. Uh, Dinesh D'Souza, when you said a moment ago about democratic socialism and this idea that there's an alternative way to the totalitarian regimes of the past, I always think of democratic socialism this way, that in regular sort of traditional socialism, you have one lone wolf who decides to eat all the sheep. In democratic socialism, the wolves get together and vote to eat the sheep. I think that's a very good way to put it. Um, uh, the way I put it is if I go, you know, when I was a kid, I'd go to school. This was in India and I'd carry in my pocket a bunch of marbles. So there could be one guy who jumps me and takes my marbles and he would be violating uh, me and he would be uh, stealing my stuff. Uh, now imagine that I was part of a group of six and, and four of them decided, hey, let's jump Dinesh and take his marbles. Now they're a majority. So in this sense, they've got the majority vote. But by them jumping me and forcibly taking my marbles, they're doing exactly the same thing as the one guy, except they're, now I'm, I'm, you may say, being gang raped instead of being individually raped. So in either case, it's robbery. In either case, I'm being violated. And the fact that it's being done by a majority is really very little consolation and certainly no moral justification. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Dinesh, one of the things that I think is so essential for us to understand is, as well as the role of government fundamentally, especially here in the United States of America. I mean, socialism is completely averse to the constitutional limitations of government because it suggests that it, government's role is not simply about protecting individual rights, but it is about providing cradle-to-grave services for people of all different spectrums. But determined how you will go about it by an elite bureaucracy? I think the, um, it's a mistake to look at socialism as purely a form of economic confiscation, because mm -hmm. it is that. Yes. But it also is an assault on basic civil liberties. Yep. Uh, you know, coronavirus in its own way was a strange preview of socialism. It gave you sort of on a temporary basis what socialism would look like permanently. Uh, you know, food shortages, limits on what you can buy. So that's the economic side. But the other side is no freedom of assembly, surveillance of your movements, uh, shut down the churches, so no religious liberty. So the assault on civil liberty is the other prong of the socialist left. And they're just as keen about that one as they are about the economics. In fact, if you look at socialists today, a lot of them care more about uh, blacks and illegals than they do about the working class. They care more about abortion than the minimum wage. They care more about the transgender bathroom than they care about, say, universal basic income. So once again, this is a socialism that involves cultural, moral, and even spiritual elements alongside the purely economic ones. Yeah, and in the last segment, our guest mentioned freedom of speech as one of those liberties that socialists are not too fond of because in order to go about their utopian vision, really dystopian vision, you need to suppress different voices that dissent. And we're even seeing that play out today across America. Yes, um, that is occurring on a number of uh, levels. Uh, it started out really with the speech codes on the campus, but now it's become digital censorship. I mean, just think about it. In the old days, you'd have a kind of a grumpy Soviet censor, typically some twerp who hadn't really read any books, but he'd sit around and decide this book can't be published because it goes against the official orthodoxy, or then they would have book burnings and so on. Well, now we do it differently, but it's the same thing. Some some little twerp at BuzzFeed will send a notice to Twitter, hey, let's get this guy banned because he's engaging in hate. 
Now, the guy's not saying anything particularly hateful. He's not inciting anyone to violence. He's just saying something that the BuzzFeed twerp disagrees with. Um, but that guy knows he has a sympathetic ear from a like-minded uh, goofball at Twitter, probably also 25 years old, and the two of them get to decide to kick this guy off of, off of Twitter or off of YouTube. So it's kind of horrific. I think John Stuart Mill would be spinning in his grave at the assault on freedom of expression and freedom of speech. Again, Dinesh D'Souza is our guest, author of the new book, The United States of Socialism. We'll put it up on the screen again. Uh, United States of Socialism, in this book, you talk about identity socialism and this concept that, and you were alluding to it a moment ago, Dinesh, that socialism as we view it today in our society, or at least as is being represented, is a little different from the socialism of the 20th century. Expand upon that, please. Well, let's look for a moment at the George Floyd uh, protests. Um, the drive here is based not on economics. You know, Marx thought you'd have a revolt of the working class, that, the wor that ordinary working people would become so impoverished and so exploited that they would rise up and overthrow the system. And that didn't happen in Marx's day, and it hasn't happened to this day uh, in any country anywhere in the world. So leftists have realized we're not going to get socialism that way. We have to appeal to other forms of social discontent. We have to divide society, not just between the rich and the poor, but also between, say, blacks and whites. So this is what happens with the George Floyd is you've got a specific incident, uh, and that is an injustice. But the, the clever move, the sleight of hand on the part of the socialists is to take that incident and out of it and attach it to a whole narrative of broader injustice. In fact, that broader narrative is in a way unhooked from the original incident. Uh, and that is that America is chronically racist and our institutions are racist. And capitalism is somehow married to white supremacy. Uh, and it's been this way since 1619. So the, uh, the, the bludgeoning that's going on in the public square now is if you disagree with that narrative, which is a completely bogus narrative, by the way, it can be, it, you can fire holes into it in, in every juncture. But if you disagree with that, that narrative, people go, hey, you don't care about George Floyd. You don't care about what happened in that killing. So what they're trying to do is use the incident itself to intimidate us into submission to their larger narrative and make us bow before their feet, which we are not going to do. And what's interesting about that is we're talking about authority figures using force, in this case, to murder George Floyd, but also some of the excesses of police over the past week. We talked about it yesterday in the program, a uh, week or so, of some of the police out there in terms of using force. It's interesting that that would be what they're protesting when socialism is about force. In fact, there's this clip here at Cut 5. I want to play it for a moment. Milton Friedman talks about the moral value of using force to help versus voluntary exchanges. And I'd love to get your reaction to this. Let's play the clip. Whenever we depart from voluntary cooperation and try to do good by using force, the bad moral value of force triumphs over good intentions. And you realize this is highly relevant to what I'm saying, because the essential notion of a capitalist society, which I'll come back to, is voluntary cooperation, voluntary exchange. The essential notion of a socialist society is fundamentally force. If the government is the master, if society is to be run from the center, what are you, what are you doing? You ultimately have to order people what to do. 
What is your ultimate sanction? Go back a ways. Take it on a milder level. Whenever you try to do good with somebody else's money, you are committed to using force. How can you do good with somebody else's money unless you first take it away from them? So that's a little bit of Milton Friedman, who's our patron economist here on Free to Choose Fridays. What do you make of that in the context of what we're discussing here, Dinesh? Well, it's, um, it, it throws my mind back to the 1970s and 80s when I first came to America. And I got to say, it makes me a little wistful uh, just watching Milton Friedman's kind of serene academic style it so much uh, reminds me of how I used to think of American politics as kind of a, an honorable debate between two sides that had, you may say, rival principles. And we put this debate before the American people and they decide if they would like to endorse liberty or equality, uh, equality, of, uh, uh, equality of rights or equality of outcomes. Uh, a very, it was a very a kinder, gentler America, you might say. Um, and uh, so, yes, I agree with what Milton Friedman is saying. I would put it far more forcefully and perhaps brutally today because I think we are facing these brutal realities at a much different level than he ever did. I mean, we basically now have a Democratic Party that has become gangsterized under Obama and Hillary. They've got a deep state that literally entraps and it tries to figure out ways to get rid of its political opponents. It would jail them for life if they could. I experienced this personally. These people are thugs with badges. They're much more dangerous than thugs on the street. Uh, then you've got Antifa marauding on the street, literally seizing property at will. Um, and, uh, and then you've got censorship that's become far more commonplace. Uh, the universities have become factories of ideological indoctrination. They were not that way when Milton Friedman gave that speech. When I was an undergraduate, I could have named 10 free market conservatives at Harvard off the top of my head, and these were outspoken. You'd be hard-pressed today to name one. So the problems have gotten far worse. Our side has got to get a lot tougher. One reason I've actually been very sympathetic toward Trump is because I realized that, that all of this division wasn't created by him. It created him. He's a response to it, and perhaps a necessary response to it in the same way that the tough measures taken by Abraham Lincoln when he first came to office were a necessary response to the gangsterization of the Democratic Party in the 1850s. Your point about Antifa and others in terms of property rights violations, I think, is essential in this conversation because the perhaps the most fundamental difference, I would say, between socialism and capitalism or a free market economy is the idea of property rights. And I want to play a clip here. This is Nicole Hannah-Jones. You've probably seen this in regards to the riots where she was saying that you can't do violence if you're just destroying property. Let's take a listen to this, and I want to get your reaction because I think it, it fits into exactly what you're discussing, Dinesh D'Souza. One, we, we need to be really careful with our language. Um, yes, it is disturbing to see property being destroyed. It is disturbing to see uh, people taking property from stores. But these are things. And violence is when an agent of the state kneels on a man's neck until all of the life is leached out of his body. Destroying property which can be replaced is not violence. And to put those things... I just, just hearing that, and we played it a few different times on this program. My producer, Nathan, is kind of getting tired of, of hearing it. But hearing that, you cannot help but think that there are people across the country who do not care at all about property rights. And isn't that fundamental to this discussion, Dinesh D'Souza? Well, 
I think we've got to be careful here because on the face of it, what she's saying is in fact true. Mm. Uh, namely, that our life is more valuable than our possessions. That's sure. true. Yes. Uh, and I think that it's, this is a case where the left, by the way, they always spin a narrative. Uh, lawyers say that when you argue uh, prosecution or defense, you should have a theory of the case. Well, the left has a theory of the case. Their theory of the case is that what happened to George Floyd, for example, happens every day in America. Uh, their view is that this is how America is. This America is chronically, structurally, institutionally. This is their theory. Now, the problem for our side is that we don't spin a theory. We say things like, you know, facts don't care about your feelings, but we don't have a rival explanation of what America actually is. Mm. Now, I'd like to give that explanation with regard to property. Please. So my property, and I'm thinking here of all the things I own, my book collection, everything, my clothes, my possessions, are as much a part of me. They are extensions of me in the same way that my memories, um, my ideas, um, my uh, relationships uh, with uh, friends and acquaintances. Um, in other words, my property is a part of me. So if you take away that by force, it is no different than putting your uh, fingers around my neck and preventing me from speaking or gagging me uh, or, um, uh, or, or, or infringing on my person. Now, I agree if you killed me, uh, that would be worse. Uh, but short of that, you're harming me every which way, whether or not you forcibly cut my hair or tie me down or take away my stuff. It's all the same thing. There's no basic distinction between, quote, my possessions as if they are somehow external to me, but let's say my thought, thoughts and feelings, uh, which are somehow, quote, internal to me. They're the same thing. Again, Dinesh D'Souza, our guest, author of the new book, The United States of Socialism, just came out this week. Joining us here on Jimmy at the Crossroads. Uh, just a, a little bit longer with you, Dinesh D'Souza, and I appreciate your time today. I want to ask you to expand upon a point that you raised earlier that you talk about in the book, which is the idea of socialists today sort of abandoning the working class in favor of this more identitarian perspective on things because the idea of working class was so fundamental to the ideology of socialism going back to Karl Marx even before Karl Marx and now it does seem to be that at least for many of these socialists today that's not the point of emphasis talk to us about how that sort of developed and what the implications are for it well not only was social not, not only was the working class central for Marx in Europe but it was central for FDR the base of FDR's Democratic Party in the 1930s was the white working class. That's the guy he could count on. Now, today, FDR and the Democratic Party, they've lost that guy. Uh, if you see a white working class guy, there's a very good chance you'll find him more likely at a Trump rally than at a Democratic Party or even a socialist uh, organizing meeting. And the Democrats know this. Uh, so they have been searching, you might say, for a replacement proletariat. In other words, other groups um, that they can tap into to, to substitute uh, for the working class guy who seems um, uninterested and uncooperative in bringing about a socialist revolution. Uh, where do they find those people? 
they find them in very unlikely places. Young people who are actually beneficiaries of technological capitalism, who can't imagine life without their iPhone and Uber and Airbnb and their GPS. So they take all this capitalist abundance for granted, but nevertheless are tantalized by the uh, idea uh, of having some kind of a movement towards socialism. Uh, then they find allies among professors, among artists who have never sort of liked, you might say, bourgeois civilization. They find them also, uh, they also find them among sometimes successful capitalists. Look at some of these high tech guys in Silicon Valley who vote and give money to the democratic left who actually bail out protesters in this kind of a current crisis. So uh, what we have here is an attempt to create a new socialism that taps into groups other than the working class. As, as in fact, Lenin himself put this very well. He said, if the working class won't do the revolution, we have to do it for them. However, doesn't it it sort of erodes some of their capacity to be effective if they're not grouping based on economics but are dividing people based along different lines because then that makes it more difficult, it would seem, to unify a, a, along a common cause. Right. They have no interest in unification. In fact, division is their strategy. Mm -hmm. Look at the George Floyd case. When, when this first happened, every conservative that I know, me included, said, and if I quote my own you know, tweet on the matter, I'm speechless with anger at what I see in this video. So this was a moment in which all sides could have unified. We go, you know what? There's some bad cops out there and they do some bad stuff, probably um, to whites and blacks, but maybe a little bit more to blacks. Nevertheless, this is a problem we need to tackle. But no, the left realized we don't want to go there because that's going to basically put people like Dinesh and Trump, the conservatives. No, we don't want that. We need to use this to drive a wedge into American society, to try to demonize the Trump guys, to try to make it seem like this is about, this is not about George Floyd at all. This is about institutional racism. And if Dinesh, who's an immigrant, isn't going to sign on to this idea that America is chronically racist and people of color don't have a chance, uh, and sign on to all this nonsense that flies in the face of everyday experience, as well as all the data that's out there, then we can present Dinesh as some kind of an apologist for the cop putting his neck on, putting his knee on George Floyd's throat. So right away, they spotted the opportunity to create division where there actually was a pre-existing unity. Mm -hmm. uh, let's talk for a moment about what you call the moral basis of entrepreneurial capitalism, because I think the morality question is critical to winning the messaging battle here because the left has said, look, there's inequality, there is social injustice, and the list goes on for different things that they will point to. And oftentimes it's difficult for conservatives to figure out the way to connect on an emotional level when it seems so much easier, at least on the surface, for the left to say somebody's hurting so we need government to act and use the means and resources it's amassed in order to address these ills and injustices. So talk to us a little bit about your thoughts on presenting and how we can effectively express the moral basis of capitalism. Well, you framed the question perfectly and, and just the way I frame it, because I think that a lot of the libertarian discussion of capitalism focuses on its efficiency, on the fact that capitalism works really well. And that's really not even being disputed. What's being disputed is whether the allocations of capitalism are just. 
whether capitalism is fair. Notice that even Adam Smith doesn't make the case for the fairness of capitalism. His point is that, in fact, he's somewhat critical of the motives behind it through the sort of self-interested and maybe even selfish actions of entrepreneurs. Somehow the invisible hand of competition kicks in and it channels that selfishness toward the sort of material betterment of society as a whole. So that's an endorsement maybe of the efficiency of capitalism, the system, but it's certainly not an endorsement of the morality of the capitalist. Uh, so that's the case I set out to make in the book. And I do it by grabbing a hold of the central moral claim of democratic socialism, that it's democratic. It reflects the will of the people. Why? Because the people vote every two years or every four years. And so the political system is accountable. And the left says, why don't we extend the democracy that we have in the political sphere to the economic sphere? My answer is this. The economic sphere is far more accountable than the political system. Because while you vote in the political system every two years or four years, you vote in the capitalist system every day. Yes. In fact, you vote multiple times a day. And you vote with your hard-earned dollars. So when you exchange your hard-earned dollars for products, you are, in a sense, ratifying, giving your popular consent to those products. Capitalism, in this sense, is direct democracy, whereas our political system is indirect democracy. We elect other guys to make decisions for us. Capitalism, in that sense, is far more rooted in popular consent than democratic socialism. Capitalism actually is, the, uh, is a form of social justice. Voting with your dollar is one way that folks have summarized what you just described, I think, because that is that is what you're doing each and every day. And something else I would say, though, in terms of the moral discussion, Dinesh D'Souza, is about the importance, and we talked about property rights before, but the importance of individual liberty. That is to say, we can think, we can reason. Therefore, we should be free to think, free to act, and free to choose. And if government in a socialist type of society is going to direct things, that impinges upon your ability not even just to, to be free to act and free to choose, but also free to think. We were talking about the free speech issues that we're facing across the country that have been critical to regimes in the past to being able to rise and and put their uh, their their boot on the the societies at large and so I think that that's fundamental too is that if you go to a socialist utopia or a socialist a socialist society where government is making all sorts of determinations and decisions that impinges very directly on your ability as a human being just to live your life as you see fit yeah, I, I completely agree with that. And I would take it even further. I think that if you're successful as an entrepreneur, you do it not just by reasoning and by exercising your liberty, but by putting yourself in the place of others. That's how you're able to fulfill their wants and needs. And the most successful capitalists, in fact, the ones that create the greatest inequality, are so good because they're able to create things that anticipate people's wants even before yes. they know they have them. So like nobody wrote a letter to or an email. No one said, no one told Steve Jobs, hey, guy, you know, make a phone that allows you to take photos and do texting and watch movies. And no, Steve Jobs thought of it. He made it before people knew they couldn't live without it. So uh, when an entrepreneur, a supply side entrepreneur in this case, because the supply precedes the demand. Yes. Those kinds of revolutionary products, I think, are really what change society. And people are so excited to have those products that they happily reward the entrepreneur that does that. So, so who's creating the inequality? 
Steve Jobs isn't creating it. We are. We are by, in a sense, providing such a thunderous applause to his product that we are happily standing in line the day the new edition of Apple comes out to get our iPhone. We're happy to give him $400 because the iPhone is worth so much more to us. And so it's funny to hear these socialists deplore inequality when we, the people, are responsible for creating it. It's so true, and I think your point about de uh, supply preceding demand is critical. We've talked about how investment is first, and also about how gross domestic product, GDP, is a false measure of the economy because it overemphasizes consumer spending, government spending, and this false notion of, uh, uh, of net exports. But I want to ask you before we let you go, and again, Dinesh D'Souza is author most recently, he's author of many books, documentarian extraordinaire, but most recently of the United States of Socialism. And I want to go to your last chapter where you talk about a battle plan to defeat the socialists. Of course, I would encourage people to read the book to get into more depth on it, but give us sort of your overview of this battle plan, what needs to be done in order to preserve the American way of life, preserve the free market, and defeat socialism. The, the problem we face is that we're not in a, in a fair fight. We're not in a level playing field. It's not just the Republican versus the Democrat, the conservative versus the progressive, because the Democrats have three allies, uh, which happen to be the largest megaphones of the culture. They have academia, they mostly have the media, and they have pretty much all of Hollywood. So as a result, their reach is much bigger, and they're able to manufacture massive big lies simply by promulgating them across their various platforms. So we have to figure out ways to fight in which we are able to have that kind of reach. We can build our own megaphones. Um, and this is going to take, this is a little bit of a longer term project. It goes beyond Trump's uh, re-election because it affects every election. And um, we also have to dismantle, I would say, the gangsterization of the other side. And that means holding the deep state accountable, putting these guys in handcuffs if need be. Uh, fighting and overthrowing digital censorship, using all tools at our disposal to do that. And third, taking all these Antifa, refuse fascism and Black Lives Matter thugs off the street. You can't even have a democratic debate when you've got marauding hordes showing up at your door to smash the glass of your front door every time you say something they don't like. Yeah, I mean, I know so many people who are very genuine advocates and supporters of Black Lives Matter who've just, their message has been completely co-opted by these uh, you know these, these bands of extremists who are going around destroying property earlier this week we talked with a business owner who his his business is just absolutely devastated by this and we're seeing story after story after story of exactly that but sometimes i guess that's the point of this discussion is that sometimes the socialists in order to achieve their objectives will go to extreme ends dinesh just well why would they, you know, why would they smash a minority-owned business? And mm. the simple answer is that for them, black lives don't matter. That's not what they're about. Even when they say things like defund the cops, that's not what they mean. What they want is they want to reduce the cops to, a, to essentially a groveling extension of whatever they want. Every time they show up, they want the policemen to grovel and submit to them. They want to be, in a sense, above the law. That's the real meaning of defund the police. Dinesh D'Souza, again, author of the book, The United States of Socialism. Let's put it on the screen one more time. Get the book. It's a fascinating read, especially 
because what you're doing is talking about the modern sort of incarnation of socialism, which, as we talked about, is a little bit different, at least in terms of some of the strategies, approaches, and ideological underpinnings than what we saw in the past. So fascinating read. Dinesh D'Souza, really enjoyed this conversation. I hope you'll come back. Thank you. Thank you. I enjoyed it, too. Thank you. Best wishes and have a good weekend. Again, Dinesh D'Souza joining us here on Jimmy at the Crossroads, of course, author of the book, The United States of Socialism. Fascinating discussion indeed. I always enjoy when we can delve into depth on some of these ideological issues, but also the practical issues. One of the things we didn't get to with Dinesh that we did get to in the previous discussion that is important to keep in mind is results. The results of socialism are failure, failure, and failure. The results of free market capitalism, fundamentally different story success, prosperity, and expansions of individual liberty and opportunity. That's the story of capitalism, the complete opposite of socialism. That is it for us today on this Free to Choose Friday. Be sure to tune in tomorrow night, 710-KNUS, in Denver, 5 to 8 p.m. Also, this weekend, enjoy it, relax as best you can. Stay safe, stay healthy, and stay well. My thanks to Christian Rossville, our guest earlier, as well as Morgan Ziegers and Dinesh D'Souza, Nathan Matouche, producer extraordinaire, and, of course, you for watching and the Washington Examiner, our partners. Have a great weekend. God bless America. See you Monday.